We've been going through the Ten Commandments in this season, and we come to today the Eighth uh, Commandment. Um, of the Ten Commandments, we've been saying that the first four are how we relate to God, and then the last six are how we relate to other human It's amazing the connection in Scripture. Love God with all of your heart. And then what? Love your neighbor as yourself. For all the commandments are essentially built upon these two. Um, And I've been saying this over and over again to a point where some of you just tune out for the first couple minutes. But I need to say it again because every week there are folks who visit our church who think that Christianity is about obeying a bunch of rules to earn favor with God. And Ten Commandments is the prime example in which they think that's exactly why it's there. So that we could obey these commandments so that we could earn favor with God. And the title of this sermon series is Set Free in Order to Live Free. God gives the Ten Commandments to God's people after he set them free, purely out of grace and mercy. And then he gives them the Ten Commandments to say, this is then how you shall live. And the Ten Commandments are given to us so that by obeying them, and we're using this word, we could live into this reality life that God designed for us to live. We, we don't... When we break the Ten Commandments, we don't so much break the commandments as we've been saying, what? We break ourselves. We break ourselves. We are living in a way that God didn't design us to live when our Creator God made us. When we violate these commandments, and we've talked about various commandments of Sabbath, what happens when we don't instill within our lives this regular rhythm of Sabbath and rest? Some of us are sitting here today going broken down because I don't know what it means to rest and find rest underneath this thing that drives me constantly. We've talked about sex and God's design for sexuality and what happens to us when we violate that. Murder. We talked about that last week. Now God calls us when he says do not murder to consider every life as sacred, as valuable, of infinite worth. Our call is to have aggressive compassion and the doctrine of carefulness. And today, we come to this commandment, do not steal. Do not steal. As we've been saying, many of the Ten Commandments are cast in the negative, but there's also a positive invited, right? Meaning, when God says, do not steal, the negative, there's a positive invited, and that is to be radically generous. That's what the commandment is about, and we're going to dig into this. Do not steal is actually a much larger commandment about generosity. I I love the way the Ten Commandments get to the basics, don't you? Last few commandments, do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not steal. That's power, sex, and money. Power, sex, and money. Just a question. Would you say our society and our culture is jacked up because we don't know what to do with power, sex, and money? Of course. There's so much common sense wisdom here. And in many ways, heads up, what God has to say about money is way more offensive 
and way more controversial than what he says about sex. Jesus speaks about money 10, 15, 20 times more about money than what he does about sex, which makes me pause and go, then why is the evangelical Christian world in this country obsessed with the issue of sex and yet rarely talk about greed, materialism? Well, that's not our church, though. We don't mind talking about money, not because it's comfortable to talk about, but because Jesus talks about it so much, so does Paul. The Bible's constantly talking about our attitude towards our possessions and our money. Real, just kind of, give me like 30 seconds to kind of put this out there, and then we'll dig into this text. Money is essentially just a measure of your power. Money is a measure of how much of the world you control. Now, the question, how does money give you power and control some of you already know this because you live the middle upper middle class educated life style money gives you something called choices yes if you have money when you walk out of here today (laughs) you have more choices on where you can go eat If you have money, you have more choices on what you're going to wear, what you're going to buy. If you have money, you have more choices if you need help to do stuff. Money gives you more choices, more of the world to control, which gives you more power, which raises a question then. Is money good or bad? It's neutral. It's the question, is fire good or bad? It depends. If it's in the fireplace, it's good. If it's on your rug, not so much. And I need to say this because there are some of us, and Paul dealt with this in the epistles, that think money in and of itself is evil. It's not. Money can be used constructively or destructively depending on, and here's the issue, your heart. That's what Jesus is constantly getting at. Your heart, your heart, your heart. Now, the text that we're going to go to, because we've been going to another text to kind of expound on Ten Commandments, is actually quite a, a startling text. It's found in Ephesians 4, verse 25. Anyone, verse 28, who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands. Now, if it stopped right there, that right there in and of itself is a pretty powerful statement. But Paul doesn't stop there. And this is where the startling comment comes in. But must work doing something useful with his own hands so that they may have something to share with those in need. You know what he's saying? He's saying a thief hasn't stopped being a thief until he's generous. A thief hasn't stopped being a thief until he's generous. To obey the Eighth Commandment, it's not enough for you and I to simply not steal. Paul says to obey the Tenth Eighth Commandment, you must be radically generous. Now just sit on that for a moment. Does it sound crazy to you? Actually, let's go deeper. There's two ways you can steal. One, You could steal by wrong taking, but you could also steal by wrong keeping. You could steal by wrong taking, which is what most of us, when we look at this commandment on surface level, 
But the Bible takes you deeper and has actually more to say about stealing via wrong keeping. First, wrong taking. Thou shalt not steal tells us something profound. Here we go again about human nature, about the way God designed us. And that is this. You and I were built to have and to care for things. We're designed and built to have and to care for things. God creates Adam and Eve, puts them in the garden, and he creates them for each other, which is the reason why you and I long for intimacy. But he doesn't just put them in the garden for each other just to go at it. He puts them in the garden to take care for things. God says, be fruitful, cultivate, fill it, subdue it, and multiply cultural mandate. God designs us to have and to care for things. It's an inherent part of who we are. Now, that helps explain a number of things. We've had folks in our church who've been incarcerated. I've gone to visit some of them. Incarceration is dehumanizing, is depersonalizing. Why? You're literally stripped of just about everything you have, except maybe a toothbrush and a comb. This may help explain on a larger side level why extreme socialism or extreme collectivism has failed in different parts of the world. When you strip from somebody the sense in which nothing belongs to you, there's a sense in which it's dehumanizing, depersonalizing. Oh, by the way, I love how I have conversations with folks who go, well, wasn't that the book of Acts? No, you're, 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 uh, you're, you're missing a certain word in the book of Acts where it says, and they willingly gave out of everything they had. Christianity is a radically different economic system than capitalism. Capitalism says everything you have is yours. You could do whatever you want to. Go, purchase, consume. Go ahead. Socialism says everything you have is the communities and we have to do as the community needs. Christianity says everything you have is God's and you have to do as God desires. This is the reason why for some of you, if you live in the city of Chicago long enough, um, you've been robbed. Anybody? Had things stolen from? Yep, yeah. <laughs> How many of you had cars stolen? Anybody? Yeah, look at the hands that went up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why is it that when we get, listen, why is it that when something is stolen, robbed, why is it that nobody just goes, well, there he goes, bye. Why is it, why, why is it that, let's be real, you feel violated? Why is it that you feel when some of us have been robbed? Why is this sense in which your personhood has been violated? Here's the reason why. When somebody takes something, and steals it, they're taking a part of something that was given to you for you to care for. A part of your world that was given to you for you to care for. There's a sense in which our dignity will feel less than what God created us for when that thing is taken away from us. And by the way, let's be honest, this is also the reason why, for some of us, when you buy new things, there's a sense which it's a, it just goes beyond just, oh, I'm, it's nice to have things. There's a sense in which when you buy things and when you have things and you own things, there's a sense in which, again, it just goes beyond just, that, there it goes. God creates us and he says, this is a piece of the world for you to care for. God builds Adam that way. We're all built that way. And so we get our sense of significance from a sense of worth and to a great degree. The Bible says, when you shall not steal, it assumes that there's something about us 
that God put into us what we need to have and to care for. So you know why stealing is destructive? I'll put it in the extreme. You're, you're, you're trampling on the caretaking rights of another human being. When you steal, you are trampling on a God-given right of another human who's made in the image of God. That's what stealing is. Thank you for hanging in there with me. That's a nice philosophical, thank you, Peter. Let me apply this. So when you and I go stealing, you and I immediately think of blue-collar stealing, right? Entering and breaking, robbing, stealing. That's easy. You know what's destroying our society? is what I call white-collar stealing. And by the way, if you're sitting there going, Wall Street, white-collar, no, 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 no. Let me break it down for us, okay? There is something called a theft of time. Do you know what that is? That's when you don't give your employer your best work. Do you realize that? How many of you don't do your best work at work? How many? I don't need you to raise your hands. There's like a confession time. You don't need to do that. Refreshingly honest of you, but thank you. (laughs) I love our church. I don't do best work. How many of us send personal emails on company time? How many of us check SportsCenter, ESPN, Facebook? We're not supposed to. How many of us are lazy? How many of us skate by? You're stealing time from your employer. Hello? Yes, this is about you and me. How many of us pay our taxes? But it's okay to steal from the IRS. No, it's not. How many of us pay our debts on time? How many of us pad our expense accounts? Should I keep going? We recently heard about a guy who works for an insurance company. You know what he was told? He was told by his boss. When people file claims, reject a quarter of them. Just reject it off the top. Just reject it. Why? Because when you reject valid claims, a lot of people just either give up or don't think it's worth it or don't think they qualify, so on and so forth. And when he asked his boss, like, why would I do that? The answer was, it's good business. How much are stealing? Uh, we live in Chicago. Whenever we talk about the cost of living, add a 25% imaginary tax on top of everything. You know what it's called? It's called the corruption tax. Do you think about, think about how much money, I would think billions of dollars, will be pumped into the economy in Chicago if 10% of the bid rigging, 10% of the fraud, 10% of the stealing, 10% of people not giving their best work. Just even 10% of the people in the city of Chicago took this command, seriously, do not steal. I think billions will be pumped into the economy. But our city, don't take these four little words seriously. Do you. (laughs) Well, you're paying attention this morning. That's good. 
That's good. I was going to say, do not shall steal, but that's bad, that's bad grammar. Hey, can we be serious for a second? Come on, come on, guys, guys, guys. And you felt uncomfortable throughout this sermon series. You see how deep this goes? Don't look around at the criminal. No, I'm talking about you and me and ours. You really want to be a radical countercultural follower of Jesus? Are you stealing from your employer? Okay, I'll stop there because we've got to talk about the other <laughs> stealing. Because the main command behind do not steal actually is not just wrong keeping, uh, wrong, wrong taking, it's wrong keeping. Again, Paul, when is a thief not a thief? Let the thief no longer steal, but let him work with his hands so that they may have something to share with those in need. I'm telling you, you guys, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. The Bible says, Paul says, you're either a thief or you're radically generous. There's nothing, nothing, nothing in between. You're either a thief you're radically generous. There's nothing in between. You've not stopped being a thief just when you stop taking. As long as you treat everything you have as your own, you hold it all for yourself, you spend it on yourself, you're still a thief. You're either a thief or radically generous. Why? Remember the whole basis of thou shalt not steal is how we're made, how we're designed. God creates the world creates man and woman and says, I want you to create, I want you to cultivate, I want you to work the garden, I want you to make things, I want you to bring potential out of it, fill it, subdue it, and rule over it on my behalf. But here's the thing, you ready? God never relinquishes control. God never relinquishes control. And we look at this, and if you understand this, it begins to way, change the way you and I look at everything. If you and I begin to look at all that we have as a trustee, not an owner, if you and I look at everything that we have as a manager, as a steward, and not an owner, if we begin to look at our home, our apartments, our clothes, our money, our resources, our time, if we let everything that we have as a trustee, a steward, a manager, and not an owner, we look at every inch, every cent of what we own as a manager, not an owner, then it begins to radically change everything. And this is a spiritual discipline that could change your life and my life. The startling passage that's one of my favorites in the Old Testament where, where essentially God fleshes this out is Malachi chapter 3, verse 7. Where, where God says, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Verse 8, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, God, how are we robbing you? And God says in tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. God says, bring the tithe in. Give 10% of your income away to my priorities, to my agenda. Why? He says, because if you don't, you're being stingy. 
He says, if you don't, you're being cheap. Oh, is that what it says? We look at the Bible. He says what? If you don't, you're being what? You're robbing me. If it's yours, if it's yours, and somebody says, give a tenth to charity, to others who are in need, and you don't, then you're being stingy and you're cheap. But if it's not yours, if it doesn't belong to you and belong to me, that's highway robbery. Matter of fact, can I take it further? If you are a manager and someone has entrusted his or her resources to you and you decide you're going to do what you want with it, that's not being stingy. That's not being cheap. That's called fraud. You're robbing me. God says, you and I could see our money and our possessions as ours, in which case the idea of giving it away will be upsetting and even go, that's unfair. Or you and I could see our money and our possessions as having been given to us by a very gracious and generous benefactor, at which point there is an ease. Now, I've used this illustration a long time ago, and I haven't in a while, but think about this. If somebody came to you and said, what's your name, sir? Pete. Oh, Pete. Okay. Somebody came to you, Pete, and said, here is my wealth and resources, Pete. Take good care of it. Oh, by the way, um, you could give 10% away to my priorities, but you could keep the 90 and do what you want with it. How many of us would go, that's unfair? But that's exactly what we're doing. That's exactly what we're doing. Um, I don't have time to go over all the scripture passages that talk about God's ownership. Here's just a couple. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and fullness thereof. Job 41, 11. Everything under heaven belongs to me. Now, there are some of you who are reacting to this by saying, it's not his. I worked my whatever off for this. Uh, John, I want to ask you, okay, let me ask you, where did you get your whatever from? <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> to which you would go, I earned it, the hard work. Okay, let me press you further. Let's go deeper. No, where did you get whatever to do the hard work? Talent. Where did you get your talent from? Your mind. Where did you get your mind from? Your health. Where did you get your health from? Why were you and I not born with physical disabilities like a lot of people? Circumstances. How many of us are sitting here today 
And you and I, you don't even have to be a committed Christian for crying out loud. How many of us just objectively can go, I would not be where I am today had it not be for circumstances that were beyond my control? Anybody? Good Lord! Did you have anything with circumstances? Why were you born in this country? Do you know that if you deliver papers in this country, you make more money than 70% of full-time laborers in the rest of the world? A lot of people want to live here. You do. Why were you not born in North Korea? That was like, because my parents aren't Korean. You're missing the point. (laughs) Is that the point? Why were you not born in some third world country with nothing? Did you not have anything to do with that? Is it not all grace upon grace upon grace? Can I get an amen? Good Lord! Everything we have, health, talent, mind, circumstances, connection, network, had it not been for the grace of God. It's a gift. All a gift. And just as Adam was put into the world to take care of it, steward it, so your wealth and resources have been given to you and me to take care of it, to steward it, just as Adam was put into the world, not as an owner, but a trustee, a manager, a steward, so have we been entrusted. That means that we literally own everything in a secondary sense. But God says, Carlton, I'll bless you with talent, resources here, stewarded. How do we violate the Eighth Commandment? Wrong taking as well as wrong keeping, acting as if it's ours. That's why God could actually say in Ephesians 4, if you're not generous... You're robbing me. And he says in Malachi 3, if you're not generous, you're robbing me. Now, everybody, I want to stop right here and just, um, you know our church and you know how we do things. Now, I, I, I want to take you to, give me like three minutes, take you a deeper insight where this isn't just about you and God, but how it has ramifications for the larger human community. If you go to a Bible scholar like May in our church, she might be able to tell you that the word rob here actually is a very unique word used very uh, infrequently in the Old Testament. The word rob here literally means to plunder and to pillage, to oppress. Think for a moment. When God says you're robbing me, it's a word that's used to oppress, to pillage, plunder. It's a word used to describe powerful, wealthy country oppressing, pillaging, and plundering a weaker country. It's a violent word. And God says, when you think you're an owner and you keep it all to yourself, you're doing that to me. To which all of us, if you're paying attention this morning, goes, how are we doing that to God? Here's how. In order to understand Old Testament worldview, you need to understand this concept, shalom. God creates the world to be this interwoven, interdependent, interconnected place. The metaphor that the Jewish rabbi used was that of a garment. I wish I had something to show him. Garment. 
A garment is one in which thousands of threads have gone over, gone under, gone around each thread. And it's the webbing together of all of these threads in community, in interdependency, that there is strength, security for all. And the way that God creates the world, he says, it's created to be this interconnected, interwoven place in which God's people relate to God and to each other with the resource, everything they have, in such a way that there's this interpenetration dependence and there's strength, security, abundance for all. Garment. Someone who understood this concept and their work for justice was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. When he writes from his letter in the jail in Birmingham, We must all learn to live together as brothers or we will all perish together as fools. Listen carefully. We are tied together in the single garment of destiny, caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. And whatever affects one, directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. This is the way God's universe is made. This is the way it is structured. A book that every single serious follower of Jesus ought to read is a book called The Whole in our Gospel by a guy named Richard Stearns. And these are statistics taken straight out of his book. The total annual income of American churchgoers is $5.2 trillion. When I read that, my jaw dropped. Next slide. American Christians make up 5% of the worldwide Christians but control one half of the Christian wealth in the world. Next slide. It would only take 1% of the annual wealth of American Christians to lift the poorest 1 billion of the world's population out of extreme poverty. Next slide. Only 5% of American households give 10% of their income towards ministries. 5%. 5% of us in this room, typical congregation, actually take what Scripture says seriously. Next slide, please. 9% of born-again Christians actually tithe. Next slide, please. In 2005, the average American churchgoer gave 2.5% of their finances. During the Great Depression, it was 3.3%. Next slide, please. It would only take $65 billion, which, by the way, I'm not very good at math, so I'm, I'm texting someone in our church. I'm like, what the heck is $65 billion out of $5.2 trillion? And he texts back. He's like, Pastor Peter, it's 0.0123%, which is one. So if... American Christians gave a tiny bit over 1%. We would do these four things. One, eliminate the most extreme poverty on the planet for more than a billion people. Two, 
provide universal primary education for children. Three, bring clean water to most of the world's poor. And four, provide basic health care and nutrition for everyone in the world. I just saw somebody go, Our world is not a beautiful garment. It's like a thousand pieces of thread thrown on top of each other. You know what God's saying? Take your thread, you, your resources, your education, your network, people you know, and God says, I want you to invest that. I want you to plow that. I want you to share that with the larger human community. Do you and I really think that us sitting here and saying, what I do with my money doesn't make any impact in the world? Are you kidding me? Are we kidding ourselves? This is why God's saying, Malachi 3, when you don't, it's pillaging, it's plundering my creation and what you and I do or don't do with our resources has enormous ramifications. And when we fail to do that, how do we look at that and go, well, we're just being cheap. We're just being, un- we're being unjust. It's injustice. Why? It's not ours. It's not ours to begin with. And God says, I have earmarked things for you and the city and the world and i've given you these things and for some of us listen i know our church majority of you have gone to great colleges have great jobs and are making more than your peers do you really think that all of that that's been given to you as a grace gift, do you really for a moment think that God has entrusted all that to you so that you could enjoy your life for yourself and do nothing for the human community at large? I'm talking to you and to me. By the way, I should have warned you in advance. I'm going to scream a lot during this sermon (laughs) because I scream the more I struggle with it. And I struggle with this. Do you know why I am so passionate about this? Do you know how much resources, education, smarts, brains, money, network that's in this room? Do you know what's entrusted to us? Are you kidding me? Many of you represent the elites in the city of Chicago. What are you doing with it? What am I doing with it? Are we hoarding it for ourselves? Are we padding our expense account? Oh, I need a new car. I need a, I mean, really? That's the reason why I am so passionate about this. Because of what our church is and what it represents and what it can do. Amen? I'm done yelling. 
See, when I, when I study this and when I hear God going, I've given you more talent than others, and I'm looking at the church and going, yep. I've given you more resources than others. Yep. I've given you more smarts. We have a room full of people who can go, why me? Look at all this. Why me? And while the rest of the world and the social fabric is fraying, because we have two billion people making a dollar less than a day, we And I need to talk about this for like two minutes when you go, well, how much, Peter? The Bible is clear. It says in the Old Testament, the tithe, the tithe, the tithe. It's the biblical practice of giving 10% of annual income. Let me just, let me just say this up front right now. Right now, everybody, please listen. You will never hear me say that the Bible says that you've got to give 10% to the local church. Never. Because it doesn't say that. The Bible says give at least 10% to God's work everywhere. Everywhere. I absolutely think it's important for you to support your local church, but I think it's absolutely important for you to support other organizations. I do. I do. The important thing is God says, take that 10%. In the Old Testament, God says 10% is to be given towards the work in the temple to the poor and to God's people with their needs. To which I've had actual people ask me, Peter, Jesus never talked about tithing. Really? Can I show you where he talked about tithing? And you're not going to like it. Luke eleven forty two. Jesus talking to the Pharisees. That'd be you and me, by the way. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give a God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect the love and ju- justice and the love of God. Listen carefully. You should have practiced the latter. That is, you need to be about justice and love without leaving the former undone. I don't know how in the world somebody could, Jesus never said you tithe. Jesus says, be about love and justice and don't forget to tithe. He's affirming what God says in the Old Testament. What he is saying to the Pharisees is, the trouble with you, Pharisees and Peter and many of us is that your attitude is one of as long as I give God 10% everything else is mine and Jesus says if there's a need in the community where love and justice says you give more Jesus says you give more Pharisees are hell bent on obeying the code of conduct and rules and Jesus says let love and justice drive you to be more radically generous do you know why I think also the New Testament doesn't mention the tithe as much are we more blessed than the Old Testament believers? Answer? I would think so. God lives inside of us for crying out loud. I, I still would just go, wah. We're more blessed. We're more privileged than the believers. Or I think about this. What would have happened if Jesus tithed his life? I don't know about you, but I'm glad he didn't tithe his life. I don't know about you, but I'm glad when Jesus went to the cross, he gave his, say with me, all. I've had one conversation with somebody like this. Apparently, it's the same guy because other pastors have talked about the same guy. I had a guy come up to me one time. He goes, is New Community a law church or a grace church? Why? 
I just want to know. I said, we're a grace church, of course. He goes, oh, I'm so glad to hear that because I thought you were going to be this law church that told people they had to tithe. And I said, no, actually, we're a grace church. The law says do not murder. Grace says don't even be angry. The law says, the law says, (laughs) let me finish. You guys already, the law says, have I told this before? The law says what? Do not commit adultery. And grace actually says, don't even lust. The law, yeah, says 10%. But grace actually says you go beyond the law. So give 20, 30, 40. I would never want to stop you from living by grace. And I'll never forget his response. Oh. (laughs) Which is always a very profound theological response I found. Oh. Two real practical things. One, there are some of you who don't tithe. Do you know why? And you're thinking, when I make more money. Let me tell you what happens. If you give 10% of 10 bucks, that's a dollar. Human nature! Dollar, a dollar. What can I do with a dollar? Maybe buy small Dunkin' Donuts coffee. Maybe, I think. 99 says, yeah. Yeah! Tithe. A hundred bucks. 10%. Okay, 10. Ten dollars. That's okay. You make a thousand, it's a hundred. Ha, ha, ha. If you can't establish discipline of tithing when you have little, you will never tithe when you make more. And the funny thing is, when we go, oh, a thousand, oh, that's 10% of 10,000, God's up there going, are you serious? Secondly, for those of you who don't tithe, and can't afford to, in 2015, pick a percentage and stay with it. Pick a percentage, you're going to come, and, and commit to it. Don't go, well, if I have more, if I, human nature, our spending will always fill to our income. You're making 40000 right now, you're going, when I make 80000 I'm going to be generous. No, why? Your lifestyle is going to be of 80000 Pick a percentage. Stick with it. Okay. Cece, come on up. How do you and I do this? How do you and I do this? Ugh. You got to have a new heart. Where do you get a new heart? You get it from a new motive. You know what I love? Say, church, say, what do you love, Peter? I love the fact that the whole Bible is about Jesus. That's what I love. Do you know that Jesus is right here in Malachi 3? Let me show you. Malachi 3.1, it says, and I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. That's, by the way, every New Testament writer says that John the Baptist. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And 500 years after this prophecy, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And he gives his life, not 10%, but all of it dies for sins of humanity and a lost and broken world. And then he rises again. And throughout the New Testament, it's uncanny how every New Testament writer, when they talk about money, they don't go, they don't. <laughs> let me show you. <laughs> that didn't make any sense because you don't know what the verse I'm talking about. Second Corinthians verse 8, 9. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Paul is collecting money 
for famine relief in Jerusalem. And he's going around churches. And he doesn't do these two things. He doesn't put, <laughs> he doesn't put pressure on their will. He doesn't go, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Do what I say. He doesn't. You know what else he doesn't do? He doesn't put pressure on their emotions. He doesn't go, look at those orphans. Look at those big brown eyes. Do you know why he doesn't? Because you and I, when we're watching TV, eating our popcorn, and a commercial comes on of orphans, you and I don't go, oh, my God. No, what do we do? Next channel. It doesn't work for somebody to go, do it, because the Bible says. It doesn't work to go, don't you feel guilty? It doesn't work. Do you know why? Because ultimately, Jesus says, it's your heart issue. Where your treasure is, do you remember? There your what? The reason why you and I are more generous is because our treasure, our security, yes, for some of us, it's about security, foundation worth, is in our bank account, our children, our family, our house, close. Our treasure is elsewhere. And I got to tell you, maybe it's just the season, but this verse that is so familiar to me is coming home like nobody's business during this season. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, for you, a God's chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Do you know what God's own possession literally means? It literally means God's own treasure. You are God's own treasure. You are God's own treasure. Jenny and I talk a lot about gifts right now because of Christmas. I'll be honest, when you have a lot, there's not really no gift that just makes you go, you know what I mean? Like, what do you give Bill Gates during Christmas? What do you give Mark Zuckerberg? What do you give these guys that have everything that would make them go, oh, what what do you give them? This verse? The creator of the universe, the owner of the galaxies and the stars of the universe says that when he looks at you and me, he's overwhelmed. I don't know what to do with that. I mean, honest, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to do with the fact that right now, right now, right now, the creator of the world and the universe, that when he looks at you, and me, our five-second lives, when he looks at us, he's overwhelmed. And I know for a fact that that hasn't hit me like it needs to because I'm not a generous person. See, the question as we celebrate Advent to, oh, why did Jesus do that? Do you realize that the only reason why Jesus did what he did is because you and I were his heart's treasure? You and I will do everything to pursue our treasure. Blood, sweat, and tears. Jesus, who had the praise of heaven and of angels, who had everything he wanted, comes down 2,000 years ago, born a baby, walked this earth, and on the cross, he is stripped of his clothes, which is an echo of the fact that he is stripped of his all. Why? Because somehow on the cross, Jesus looks at you and looks at me and says, Father, even going to hell will be worth it for them. I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to do with that. 
I don't know what to do with this overwhelming truth that God says, you are my treasure, and this was worth it. I can tell you, though, I can tell you, though, the level of radical generosity in our lives will have very little to do with what the pastor says. and what, It has everything to do with whether your heart today is overwhelmed at the fact that your Father in heaven says of you, you are my treasure. And when that hits you, Your treasure will no longer tell you what to do, like many of us are doing these days, but you will tell your treasure what to do. When that hits you, you'll stop saying, oh, if I had more money. (laughs) Instead, your heart will say, if I had more Jesus. If I had more Jesus. Thank you, Father. Your son didn't tithe his life, but he gave his all. May we be radically generous people. This is the only way that we will keep the things that we own from owning us. Father, I don't know what to do with this truth (laughs) that I, we are your treasured possession. I, but I pray that somehow my heart will be softened to that truth. And that it would cause my heart and my life to be one of radical generosity. And Father, especially to those, I want to pray for my brothers and my sisters who are going through economic hardship, who are struggling because finances is their security. that you would remind all of us that ultimately you are our only security, the only gift and treasure that can never be taken away.